You are listening to the Creekside Church Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Terry Riley titled, God Remembered, from the series Foundations. For more info, visit creekside.org. We're going to see another wonderful picture of Father God today at the outset of this and throughout this chapter. Um, I'm always amazed at people who have such a negative perspective of God, and I really believe it's because they really don't see and understand Him. When you really see uh, the, the, the God of the Bible, and you begin to see it not in little Kodak moments, but as a video, and really the totality of who He is, you really understand the incredible love and grace and mercy of his life. And so we'll talk about some hard things today a little bit, but I want to just kind of set the table for you there to, uh, to get you ready for that because I want you to see the, the God of the scriptures. I, uh, <clears throat> have you ever been forgotten? Have you ever forgotten you? I was, uh, when I was a younger boy, I, my dad was kind of, kind of absent-minded. He was, he would be thinking about something and then quickly think about something else and he'd forget about things. And now, let, let me take you back a number of years. Uh, one of my dad's favorite places to go in the whole wide world was a place called Sears and Roebuck. And uh, so now what you've got to think there in Sears and Roebuck is you've got to think craftsman tools for him. And I would go over to the kids section. And, and this is back in the day when, <clears throat> you know, parents, they'd let their kids run around and uh, go places without, you know, being tethered to them. And that's what my dad did. Uh, he didn't really watch over me. He just said, I'd go play, and I'd go play, and he'd go do his tool thing. Well, what, what happened is after I'd play for a while, I'd run around the store, I'd track him down because he would go anywhere and everywhere. And uh, on this day, I went to look for him after a significant amount of time. I don't know, I had to be five or six, maybe seven. I honestly can't remember totally, but we, uh, I went looking for him. I couldn't find him. And I saw him looking all over, and you know, and I mean, I'm looking, I'm, you know, I'm going after, getting after it, trying to find him. And finally, some people noticed that I probably looked a little bit panicked. And as soon as they got me, they took me into a room, started talking to me, and I started crying and blubbering up, and told them that my dad, I can't find my dad. Well, it wasn't too much longer than my dad actually walked into the room, and you have to understand him. He kind of walks in laughing because he's pretty nonchalant. And he just says, yeah, I forgot him, you know. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, on the way home, he told me, I forgot you. But I, I thought about you and remembered you on the way back. And, um, and, and here's the deal. This is why I have so many problems now. And um, this is why you go, you know, this is why you struggle with me as your pastor so much is because of that. I'm going to blame my dad, and that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Well, my dad remembered me, and he turned back, and... And I, I love that story because it's, it's, it's what a good father always does. And I want to read to you today from Genesis chapter 8. And we're going to walk our way through it because we're going to see how God remembers. Genesis chapter 8 verse 1, it says this. God remembered Noah as well as all of the wildlife and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. Remember, God has called them onto the ark in chapter 7. He has shut the door. The rains come for 40 days. Remember the rains come, uh, the the water came from the uh, depths of the earth as well as from the skies above. And so it just has this deluge and floods the whole earth for 40 days. Here's for those of us who really love our animals, and, and I love animals, this is your verse. Because God not only watched over Noah, but he watched over all the animals. 
and knew where they were. And it says, God caused a wind. I'll come back to this in a few minutes. God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water began to subside. The sources of the watery depths and the floodgates of the sky were closed and the rain from the sky stopped. The water steadily receded from the earth and by the end of 150 days, the waters had, de- had decreased significantly and the ark came to rest in the seventh month on the 17th day of the month on the mountains of Ararat. And you'll see here in chapter 7 that, uh, that the waters, that the ark actually, it rained for 40 days, but then it surged and it says that the boat was actually floating for 150 days and then there's 150 days of receding water and then there's some more days, months, that uh, they're actually on the ark. And it's probably a total of somewhere between 360 to 370 days that they're on the ark. So they're on this big barge of a boat for probably almost a year. Now, as we read this, you'll notice that through the revelation of God, uh, most people believe Genesis is written by Moses, recorded by Moses, you'll see that it's really not written like a, you know, once upon a time fairy tale. It's really written like a historical record. There's some historicity to it that gives us credence that, that, that there's a plan, there's an agenda that it really happened. It isn't just one of those once upon a time stories. And we've talked a little bit about this already, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I just want to reference that uh, for you. Uh, verse 5 says, the waters continue to recede until the 10th month. And the 10th month of the first day of the month Excuse me. the tops of the mountains became visible. After 40 days, Noah opened up the window of the ark that he had made, and he sent out a raven. It went back and forth until the waters had dried up from the earth, and he sent out a dove to see whether the water on the earth's surface had gone down. But the dove found no resting place for her foot. She returned to him in the ark because water covered the surface of the whole earth. So Noah reached out and brought her into the ark himself. So Noah waited seven more days and sent out the dove from the ark again. And when the dove came to him at evening, uh, there was plucked an olive leaf in her beak. So Noah knew that the water on the earth's surface had gone down. And after he had waited, after seven days, he sent out the dove, but she did not return to him again. Now in the 600, in the first year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the water that had covered the earth was dried up. And then Noah removed the ark's cover and saw that the surface of the ground was drying. And by the 27th day of the second month, the earth was dry. So you see this whole process taking place. And what I want you to see is just that first word there, that first thought is God remembered Noah as well as all the other wildlife. Now, this isn't a no, it isn't a remember like when my dad remembered me. My dad remembered me after he forgot me. But here, God never forgot about Noah and his family. There was never a momentary lapse of memory while they were in this dark ark bouncing around on the waves that God had created. God was remembering him constantly. He was mindful of him continually. He totally had him locked in to his brain trust. But this here thing, this, this God remember Noah is kind of a Hebrew way of saying that God began to take notice to take action in a new way. 
This is a new season coming for Noah. And it's important to remember this, loved ones, because in different seasons of your life, whether it's the starting of a new year or whether it's just you're going through a transitional time or a major change in your life or something is exploding or imploding, never forget God remembers you. And sometimes that's really difficult because we think this because we don't either sense his presence possibly or we don't see him, his activity that is very obvious. We think, well, maybe he's forgotten me. And I want you to know God didn't forget Noah and he doesn't forget you. He's ever mindful of us. There's nowhere that we can go that he isn't because he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. His presence is continually with us. Now, there is something, though, where God does have a memory lapse that I'm very thankful for. You know, the only thing God doesn't remember is your sin. The only thing he ever forgets is our sin. Jeremiah 31, 34 says this, for I will forgive their wrongdoing and, and <clears throat> excuse me, their wrongdoing and never again remember their sin. The psalmist said it this way, that as far as the east is from the west, so is our sin removed from us. What a wonderful, precious picture of God of how much he loves us, that he says, I'm not going to hold this against you. I'm not going to hold, I'm not going to remember it. God always remembers the important, but he's always able to release and to forget the failures and the foibles and the fallops of his creation of you and me. And I believe this is one of the great tests of Christian grace and maturity and Christ-likeness is the ability to remember the good in people and to forget the sin and the mess-ups and to release them from that. Now, we talk about this a lot here because this is one of, the, one of the biggest issues that hold and impede people back from growing emotionally, from growing spiritually and growing in their life is an inability or unwillingness to forgive. And we oftentimes talk about this, that forgiveness is always a journey. It's seldom a destination. We hope that we arrive at this place of forgiveness, but a lot of times, as I often say, the greater the pain, the deeper the hurt, the longer it takes to heal. And so we have to be able to make room for forgiveness and to walk that journey with people as we forgive them. But one of the greatest things we can do is be people who become like Christ and forgive. See, the key is, how are you going to respond when someone hurts you? When maybe somebody does something to you maliciously or unintentionally or they step on your toes in some way or they, they hurt your feelings, how are you going to respond? Are you going to release it from your memory bank or are you going to begin and, and, and really petition the Lord like what Jesus said when he was on the cross? He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Where you begin to understand that sometimes people just, they're, they're, they don't know what they're doing but they still deserve the grace and the forgiveness of Christ from you? See, that's what we want to do. We want to become like God. We want to remember the good things, but we don't want to remember all of the other things. But I want you to note now what God does here. He begins to prepare for Noah and his family, and he does three things. It says there in verse 1 and 2, it says the first thing he does, he stops the fountain of the deep from further eruptions. Remember, they didn't have rain. They'd never known rain before. So God says the, the way that he was going to flood this earth is he was going to flood it from the, from the bottom of the earth, from the ground, as well as from the top. So it says that he stops the eruptions from the ground. He closes the window of heaven from more downpours, and then he gets the wind blowing. And you notice there it says God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters began to subside. 
Now, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, we talked about this initially in the creation where we saw the Trinity of God the Father, Father God, God the Son, and God the Spirit were all involved in the creative process. It says in Genesis 1-2, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was literally hovering over the waters. Then we begin to see this energizing force of God's Spirit in Genesis chapter 1, verse 9, where it says, And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to, the pla- to one place and let dry ground appear. And that's what happened. Now we see here in verse 1 where the, the, the Greek word is translated wind is actually rach, which is translated spirit, the same word for spirit in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Well, what's the point? Well, it's just simply this. In the first segment of Genesis, in the first creation, God was doing a new thing, creating a whole new heavens and earth. Now, after this flood, he's kind of recreating. This is going to be a, a different earth that has now been flooded for over a year. So it's going to look different. God's going to have to do a new thing. God's doing a new thing in the recreation of it. And guess what's happening? It's still the Spirit of God that comes and literally is blowing this wind that begins to separate the waters. And we see this whole theme really interwoven, friends, throughout the Scripture, that it's the Spirit of God in us that is continually at work that wants to recreate, bring new life, bring new things to us. If you read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, when we come to Christ, he says, we become a new creation, and we have this work of the Spirit that continually wants to shape us and change us. And that's what he's doing here on the earth. And, and this whole thing, remember, Noah is now going to face a new earth. It's going to be a whole new season in his life for him and his family. And if you pick it up there in verse 15, there's, there's really three phrases I want you to look at today, and it's God remembered, and here's the second one. Then God spoke to Noah, and what does he say? He said, come out of the ark, you, your wife, your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and livestock and creatures and crawl on, that crawl on the ground. And they will spread over the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah, along with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives, they came out. All wildlife, all livestock, every bird and every creature that crawls on the earth came out of the ark by their groups. So this is interesting. They, the, the ark gets anchored, and it's time to get out. But if you go back there at the, previous to this, you'll see that they're probably in that ark for up to about seven months before they disembark. And I'm wondering, well, why in the world would they want to stay in there that long? The waters had generally receded. I'm sure that it was dry enough. I'm thinking it would have been dry enough to get out. But it says that they were in there longer. Why is that? I mean, do, do, if, you, do, if you travel, you know. Have you ever been stuck on a tarmac in an airplane? I mean, I travel, you know, a fairly good amount now. And I, I think the longest I've been, you know, stuck on one is, is about two hours where you're in, in the plane and it's, you know, it started taxiing, and then all of a sudden you get stuck for whatever reasons, mechanical issue or just things happen. And that is a crazy time. 
I mean, you just want to get off there. And everybody else around you does too. Now, I'm pretty easy going. So, you know, I can sit there and I usually do work with me or have reading. But there's people, man, all they want to do is get all liquored up and they want to complain and they want more peanuts and they want to cause problems and they want to get off and they demand their way. And I can imagine what it would have been like for this family. Noah, dad, husband, honey, when are we going to get off this thing? But they're stuck on there for a while longer. And I suppose that there's probably a reason. I think probably the thing is, the reason they stayed on board is this very verse. It says, and God spoke to Noah. Could it be that that Noah said, you know what? We're not leaving until I hear his voice. Have you ever been there in your life, friends, when in troubled times, in difficult waters, in a season when you're just kind of floating with God and you're just kind of drifting, you go, I've got to hear his voice. I've got to know what he wants for me. I've got to sense his direction, and I've got to be willing to follow it. Every significant move that I've made in my life, (coughs) excuse me, every significant move and and, and a lot of even smaller moves, this is what I'll oftentimes do. I'll sit back and i say, Lord, I, I, I'm not moving. I ain't leaving until I hear from you. Because this is a new season. And there have been times in my life where I had a family that, that depended on me and I had to take care of them. And, uh, and, and I knew that it would be really easy for me to go and not listen to the Lord. And I wonder if Noah isn't saying, you know something, I'm going to see a whole new world out here. It's just now going to be me and my family. We're not going to have to deal with the debauchery of this community and these people of the past. And now, this is going to be a different season. I need to know where the Lord is leading and where he wants to go. It's a great passage in Exodus. It's chapter 33, verses 14 and 15. After decades, on the backside of the Sinai Desert, God calls Moses. He says, listen, Moses, this is what we're going to do. We're going to move forward. I want you to begin to mobilize the people and lead them toward the promised land. And Moses, he'd been pastoring this complaining group of people for years. And they'd been giving him trouble and he had some struggles with them. And finally, God says, we're going to move. You know what I love, Moses? You know what he says? He says, listen, God, I'm not going unless you're leading. I'm not heading that way unless you go with me. What does God say to him? He says, you know what? My presence will go with you. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you an added bonus. I'm going to give you my presence, and it's going to give you rest. And then in and, and kind of the Hebrew language, it gives us reason to believe that he wasn't just saying, I'm going to give you my presence, but it's almost as if he's saying, my face is going to go with you. How powerful is that? See, it's one thing to be in the presence of people, but I know, you know what really brought me the greatest security when my dad came and picked me up? It wasn't the bodies around me, it was the face of my dad when I saw him and I knew he was fully present there with me. And this is what God is saying to him. And I think, I think Noah's learned that, you know, I'm not going to move on until God is with me and I know his voice. Because he knows he's starting over. He knows he's heading into this new place and this new season in life. And whenever we do that, God is always going to do something new. I want you to notice what the the prophet Isaiah said. He wrote this to God's people. He said in Isaiah 43, 18 and 19, Do not remember the past events. Pay no attention to the things of old. Look, I'm about to do something new. And that's the place where Noah was living. God was going to do a totally new thing through him and through his family. 
Now, when Isaiah spoke to this to God's people, they had gone through a season of captivity, and he says, listen, we're going to move forward from that. I don't, want you to, I don't want you to focus on the past. And he uses this word remembering, and it comes from the passage where he's talking about God's people remembering uh, from the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 12 to remember and to recall and to recite and to think about the Passover because what a Jewish family would do after, the, after the, the Passover took place, every year they would get together and they would recite it and they would review what happened during the Passover about how God said, I want you to place the blood over the, over the doorposts and then when you do that, the death angel will pass over and our children will live, our firstborn, will, our firstborn sons will live and the Egyptians will die. And they would recite that and they would remember it because they never wanted their kids to forget the provision and the protection that God gave to them. Now what's interesting, he's using this in a negative sense here, Isaiah is. And he says, I don't want you to remember. I don't want you to re-engage. I don't want you to, to get grooved into your thinking of the past. I don't want you to be focused on what took place years ago that brought you into captivity. And I wonder if God isn't trying to communicate that to some way to Noah. I don't want you to think about the past culture. You're going to establish a new direction for this world. When I was uh, a younger man and I had two young boys, uh, one of the things I got him for Christmas one year was a, one of those uh, racetracks, you know, the remote ones that you get the little cars and you got the little remote thing and you have, the idea is just to race it around. You put it on the track. Well, <clears throat> my two boys, I, I got them one of these. And a Sunday morning or Christmas morning, we set it up. And I'm having, I think I really got it for me, not for them. But uh, so I get it on there and I'm getting them all excited about it and we're racing and, uh, you know, and I'm beating them. And the idea is to make it go around fast, keep your car on the track and beat the other one. Well, I have one son that's, you know, he was pretty active and uh, his mind was very active and he was always, you know, he's one of those, you'd be talking to him, squirrel, you know, and, and he'd be thinking over here and then he'd go over here. So we're racing, we're doing this little this racetrack, and I'm having a great time. And I mean, it was probably, he was doing it like three minutes. And he goes, hey, Dad, is this all this thing does is just go around in a circle <laughs> and around and around? I go, yeah, dude, isn't it fun? And, and he was off playing with something else. Well, th- that's kind of how we get. So we can get so grooved in our tracks of thinking, some of our belief patterns and some of our habits, and they can begin to inhibit us from moving forward into the God, all that God has for us. Where God says, I want to do something new in you. I want to do something new through you. I want to see something new happen in your life in this season ahead. But we get so tracked and grooved into thinking and patterns that God can't do anything new. Some of us coming out of this last year, as we look back, we take a big inhale and we exhale because maybe we dealt with some experiences and potential failures. Maybe it's our marriage. It's amazing how people want to drudge up the hurts of the past. They want to rehearse them. They want to rehash them. They want to recite them. And they want to just keep going over the same old stuff instead of dealing with the issues straight on and head on. And so they'll say things like, remember three years ago or remember five years ago. Trina knows better than to do that because I can't even remember five days ago. And sometimes we have to have that kind of, a, we have to let that kind of forgetfulness go. Let it go. Deal with it. Quit reciting. Quit getting grooved into the past thinking. Maybe some of us in ministry, we've been burned out or burned up by it. 
We said, I'll never let that happen again. Or maybe we failed at some area of ministry that didn't work out. And so now we're not going to try anything. And God says, you know something? You're never going to move forward in your life with God until you step out and move forward. But we stay grooved in the past. And we just kind of keep going around and around in this circle. Maybe some of us have had a personal failure this past year. Where you know you failed God in some way. You failed yourself or maybe you failed somebody else. And maybe some of us would be sitting here and you'd say, well, you know, PT, you don't, even know the, you don't even know the half of it. And it doesn't matter that I do because God does. And while God remembers, he forgives and he releases and he calls you and I to do the same thing. But there's a lot of people that I talk to that live with this consistent low-grade sense of guilt because they can't release the past. Instead of releasing it, they simply rehearse it and recite it. And just like Noah had to step into a new season of doing some new things to, do some th- to, to, to establish this new culture, I want to say the same thing. It's true for you and I, loved ones, today. It's a new year. The word of the Lord for some of you is forget the past. Get out of the groove. Get untracked. How? How do you drive a car? You keep looking forward. You quit looking. Have you ever tried driving a car using your rearview mirror? Try it sometime. Well, don't, don't. Don't. I don't want to get in trouble, but, but just don't because you'll get in trouble. You will crash. But that's how many people live their life. They're trying to go forward while they're looking in a rearview mirror. I love what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3. He said, brethren, I don't consider myself too apprehended it yet. He said, I haven't gotten everything. I haven't grabbed everything that God has given to me. There's so much more. But one thing I do, I am forgetting the things that are behind me. And you got to understand the Apostle Paul, he had good things to forget as well as bad things. And some of us have our good things too that we can easily rest on that we got to say, you know something, that's the past. i got to keep moving forward. So he says, I'm forgetting those things which are behind and I'm reaching forward to those things which are ahead. And I press on toward the goal of the upward call in Christ Jesus. And that's our focus, loved ones, this year. Is that we keep our focus on Jesus Christ and what he have, has for us. And a real simple point you'll see in chapter 7. It says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household. And it says, Then the door shut. And I love this. In chapter 8, we just read it in verse 15, 16. It says, And then the Lord said to Noah, Come out. See, that's the way the Lord works for us. He calls us. He invites us in to enter in to receive the salvation of his life, the security of his life, the goodness and the grace and the blessings of his life. But it's not just to hold on and to keep it into this little cubbyhole. It's always to do what? Okay, let's open the door. Now let's go out. Let's begin to replenish the earth. Let's begin to fill the earth with the grace and the goodness and the glory of God because of our life and how we live. And that's what I want us to be, a church in the season ahead, loved ones. Your, your life, that we would do that. We would say, this isn't just about me and your life. This is about what God wants us to do. You'll notice in verse 20, it says, and then Noah built an altar to the Lord. I love that. He took some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of, kind of clean bird, and he offered bird offerings on the altar. 
And it says, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, I will never again, get this, I will never again curse the ground because of man, even though man's inclination is evil from his youth. And I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. And then kind of in this, this poetic ending, he says, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, it will not cease. Noah and his family, they disembark from the ark with all the animals. I don't know about you, but if I was Noah, after being stuck on a boat for over a year, you know, I'd probably want to do some kind of athletic thing, get a touch football game going, and then finish it off with the big family barbecue, just have a great time and celebrate. Wow, we got dry land. This is great. There's no record of what God said to him other than to get off. There's no record that he said to do anything, except what does Noah do? I love this. It says that he builds an altar to the Lord. If you have an understanding of what church is about, if you've read the Old Testament, you understand that wherever people built an altar, that was a place of worship. It was a place where they recognized the significance of God in their life, what he had done or what he was doing or where he was leading them. And so that's the first thing. Here Noah has lived in the presence of God. And what does he do? He gets off and he builds an altar to recognize God in his life. You know this, friends, but if you want to be shaped by God, you know the best way to be shaped is to go to the altar, to go to the place of worship. Now hear me, while Sunday morning is important and we're going to have a wonderful worship night on Wednesday night where we'll pray and receive communion, all of those are wonderful. But the key altars are the ones that you develop day in and day out because you're walking in the presence and with the presence of God. And you're getting to know him and you're living with him, not just in a mass meeting like this, but because you're walking with him. That's where you'll get altered. (laughs) That's where you'll change and you'll become more like Jesus. Now, can't you think of that? Think of this. if, uh, If you're there, they get off the... They get off the ark. At first glance, a lot of people, there's nobody else around. But can't you imagine people around saying, no, what, what in the world are you doing? I mean, you got a whole world to repopulate with people and animals and, and birds and, and everything. And what does he do? He begins to take some of these little animals and he begins to burn them in a sacrifice, lifting them up to God. And they think, why waste them? It's a resource. You may need it later. You don't know how many of them are going to get diseased or died, but what does he do? He builds an altar. You know what I've learned? Whenever I think like that, you know what's going to happen? Is I'm really thinking like the world. I'm really not thinking like God thinks. I'm really not trusting God. Remember Mark chapter 14? There's the woman with the alabaster full of perfume. It's worth a year's wages. And what does she do? Jesus is getting ready to check out of this world. He's getting ready to give his life. This is one of the last public places that he is besides with his disciples. And this gal, she so loves Jesus. She, she has this alabaster vial of perfume, literally worth a year's wages. And what does she do? She breaks it. She puts it on his feet and over Jesus. Literally says that the perfume and the, the fragrance begins to spread through the room. And then there's this guy, this disciple. You know who he is, Judas. What does he say? Why are we doing this? What a waste. Let's, let's, let's use this for something really useful. Let's put it to good, let's put it to use for the poor. And what does Jesus do? He corrects him and he goes, 
No. No. What, what are you bugging her for? What she has done is a noble thing to me. And see, what do we see there, friends? We see very clearly that God puts a priority on our worship over our serving. Well, where do you get that? Well, Jesus said this in, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 10. He said, I want you to worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So we see this very balanced perspective. Everything starts out of worship. Everything of our life flows out of worship, and then comes our service. See, a lot of times in the church, you know, we have people, and, and this is a lot of it personality, but it's, uh, it's important to understand. There's people over here, I want to serve, 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 do, 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 do. That's good. But they don't really want to spend any time with the Lord and growing in the word and praying and being at the altar and hearing his voice. And then there's the people over here that just want to go, just give me the word, give me a prayer meeting. I want to just read the word. I want to pray. But they don't want to do anything. And see, the whole point of all of this is that God brings us into this delightful balance where he gives this, he gives this challenge and this agenda to Noah and his family. This is what I want you to do. I want you to serve. I want you to repopulate. I want you to reproduce. But Noah understands that all of that's going to come out of his time with God at the altar. There's a cost. There's a cost to worship. And remember, when I'm talking about worship, I'm talking about our life, not just this act of singing. David said it this way in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 24. He was going to build this place of worship, and God says, and this, guy, and this king was going to give him, this owner of this property was going to give it to him for God, for him to use for God. You know what he said? He says, I will give my God nothing that costs me nothing. Now hear me, loved ones. I'm not, this isn't some kind of financial plea this morning. This is just a plea that our worship is about our whole life. It's not about our money. It's not about this. It's not about that. It's about us and our whole being. And like Noah, we don't want to play it safe. We don't want to play it close to the vest. We want to simply be part of what God wants to do to minister and to reach this world in us and through us. And the place that that starts is exactly where it started with him at an altar where he's worshiping God. I want to close with, with this point and I've always worked hard to be a pretty positive preacher and uh, because of the, the Bible it's called the thing, the story about Jesus Christ is about good news. And so I always try and make it good news, although sometimes it sure may not seem like it. But you'll notice these verses here. I want you to, if you have your Bible, just look back in chapter 6, verses 5 and 7. It says this, Then the Lord saw that man's wickedness was widespread on the earth. And get this, every scheme his mind thought of was nothing but evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Then the Lord said, I will wipe off the face of the earth, man whom I created together with the animals, creatures that crawl, the birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Noah, however, found favor in the Lord's eyes. Now go over to chapter 8 again. Let me review chapter 8, verse 21. It says, Then the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, and he said to himself, 
I will never again curse the ground because of man, even though man's inclination is evil from his youth. And I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. Does that kind of sound schizophrenic to you? Or like God, you know, one minute he just said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to deal with these people. I'm going to destroy them. And then, you know, a year later, I'll never do that again. What changed? Well, really nothing. Because see, the, 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 the external flood didn't destroy the internal depravity of mankind. It just removed them. Somewhere God, he catches this aroma of Noah's sacrifice. And it's a sweet-smelling savor to him. And it overpowers the stench of sin. And this burnt offering, this act of worship, Noah gives to the Lord makes all the difference in his life and to the Lord. The reason we've been studying this, remember, loved ones, is because I want you to see the thematic thread that goes from Genesis 1 through 11 through all of Scripture. Everything we see in Genesis 1 through 11 is interwoven throughout the rest of the Scriptures. And even this sacrifice, every sacrifice of the Old Testament points to what? Jesus Christ as the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God who saves the people who died on the cross and gave himself for the sins of humanity. And it is that sacrifice that trumps the stench of my sin and depravity in yours. And we can never forget that. The flood didn't clean up the culture. It didn't solve the problem. But this sacrifice spoke of the ultimate work of Jesus Christ. And because of that, God goes, you know what? I'm not going to destroy this world again in this way. That's the grace of God. That's the love of God. But the thing I want us to see Um, is this. As I said, I try and be a positive preacher and uh, somebody, if you're here today and you wrote this, I don't know who you are, but forgive me if you, I don't don't mean to tattle on you, but um, someone wrote in in an email and they said, uh, you know, I was was coming this morning and I was kind of hoping to hear something from Joel Osteen. And... um, and I think what they meant was is they wanted probably more inspiration, bigger smile, and, you know, all of those things that, uh, that, that he brings to the TV and to, to his thing. And, and, I, and I think that's wonderful. But, but can I just tell you something? Sometimes it's, it's really not always inspirational what God says. It doesn't always give us, like, the feel-goods. Because you can't read, friends, these three chapters, 6, 7, and 8, and not understand the judgments of God. Our world is changing rapidly, right in front of our eyes. Don't you find yourself asking questions like, is this just another temporary burst of global insanity, or is this the new reality that we're going to have to face for the rest of our lives? You pick up the newspaper, and it just makes me wonder, what kind of a world is my grandson going to grow up and live in long after I'm gone? I mean, we pick up the paper, and you, you, know, you see the, the shootings in Paris, the shootings in our schools. North Korea is trying out these nuclear bombs. What in the world is going on? 
And see, judgment, God's judgment, loved ones, is going to come again. Why? Because his judgment is always against, not against humanity, it's against the sin in humanity. And it falls against sin, for God is a holy. They're, 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 he's totally, he has moral absolutes. We live in a moral universe. A lot of us don't want to live in that universe sometimes. Because we want to make our own morals, and a lot of people do. But we have this moral universe, right and wrong, that God has established. And if God doesn't hate and judge sin, which is really what wars against you and I, causes all of our problems, causes us to, uh, to kill and ultimately be killed and to die, then God is not holy and just and right. And that's why he does this in Genesis 6, 7, It says that God shut the door. And once he shut the door, nobody else could get in. But guess what? Noah preached for 120 years, pounding on the nails. It's coming. It's coming. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. And we're doing the same thing today. Because there's another door. It's called Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the door. I am the entry point. And we can never forget that, loved ones. Because see, it's talked about in the New Testament. Again, remember what I said. This is a picture of what's going to happen in the New Testament. There is going to be another judgment day. Second Peter. Peter talks about it in Second Peter 3, 3 through 10. A day when God's going to destroy the earth. It's not going to be with water, but it's going to be with fire. And guess what he's going to do? He says the same thing. I'm going to do a new heaven and a new earth. I'm going to do a new thing. Jesus said it this way. He started talking about the end in Matthew chapter 24 when he said, be ready. You don't know the day. You don't know when it's going to happen, but you need to be ready. Have you ever had someone come to your house when you weren't ready? <laughs> you're there and you knock, knock, and you know, you've got your curlers in, your bathrobe on, or, um, you know, for me, I'm wearing my sweatpants and you know, I haven't shaved and my hair's everywhere. And what do I do? I look at the peephole. Who is it? You know, I hope they don't see my shadow. And then, I'll, okay, good. I'm not going to answer the door because it'd be too embarrassing. See, that's what happened. That's what's going to happen someday. I mean, much bigger, but you get the idea. Some of us are going to be embarrassed because you, you haven't asked Jesus into your life. And I want to tell you, on that day, there's not going to be a peephole. He's coming. You don't know when. And you say, well, PT, that's not very positive. Well, you know, this is the message. And this is the grace that the doors open and every one of us can respond. And here's the thing I want to close with. We worship a global God who has this global love for this chaotic, out-of-control planet. And you and I are like Noah. We have been charged to reach them and to replenish and to love them with the love and the fruit of God. And that's what I want us to do this year. I want us to remind people in a loving, gracious, non-preacher way, but there's an end coming. And I cannot help but believe we are getting closer every day.